characters kind of exist in their own plane without me. And so, you know, if I happen to stumble onto someone and <laughs> have these tools or, or whatever it might be to be able to help that character's story to come onto the page, I mean, to me, that's it's an honor and, uh, you know, it, to, to just to get to be part of that process. It's Pamela Ehrenberg today on You May Contribute a Verse. I'm Josh Munkin, children's lit author, father, science communicator, and podcaster, joined by Brenda Janaret, children's lit author, mother, avid climber and outdoors person, and podcaster. This is the podcast you may contribute a verse, where we talk to kidlit creators, share their stories, and learn from their journeys. The holidays that fall around the end of the year for many of us across cultures, geographies, and faiths are in large part about coming together to celebrate our commonalities, the things that move us forward, and the things that bring us joy, and the things that we share together. We are really happy to share this conversation with author Pamela Ehrenberg today. Brenna and I have held on to this conversation with Pamela for a number of months, and this feels like the perfect time to release it, as a large part of our conversation centers around the joy of collaboration, finding and building strong relationships, and doing things that make us feel like more than the sum of our parts. We talk primarily today about two of Pamela's books, in addition to her journey as an author as a whole. Detour Ahead is her middle grade collaboration with author Tracy Lopez that debuted in March of this year. This work centers on the intersection of two adolescents who met by happenstance and the ways that that meeting affects their lives as a result. We also spend a lot of time talking about Pamela's 2017 picture book debut, Queen of the Hanukkah Doses. This charming book blends an intercultural family dynamic with a troublesome affinity for climbing. Pamela's own journey through service-oriented work and into the publishing industry was fascinating and we are really happy to share. Here is Pamela Ehrenberg's verse. All right, so we're we're in. It's happening. <laughs> well, thank so, you both so much for your flexibility with the scheduling and all that I meant to say too. And oh, sure. of course. <laughs> Yeah, no problem. I'm so glad that you were able to join us today, though. I was um, I was just looking at your website right before we jumped on, and I was just sort of, you know, acclimating myself because sometimes oh. we schedule these things so far out that you, yeah. you sort of, you know, forget. So I was trying to orient. But um, and also I had a chance to listen to um, the Queen of Hanukkah or the do- the Queen of I wrote it yeah, down. Hanukkah queen does. of the Hanukkah yeah. doses. I'm sorry. There were so many. There's so many pieces. <laughs> It was so cute, though. What Aww. a sweet story. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for visiting my website. I have to say it's, you know, it's one of those things where I update it periodically. And I think, does anybody ever actually look at this? Like, why am I? So it makes my day just to know somebody went on my website. So They will now. We'll get you a couple of visits out of the episode. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely link to it. Yes, for sure. Oh, um. So, yeah, I... To, to just sort of jump in, I am also very interested to hear what it was like to co-author your book, Detours sure. Ahead, and also because it was written half in prose and half in verse, right? Mm-hmm. So that's also, I mean, two very different sorts of writing. Sure, sure. And and so I have to say, so those those are actually linked. I don't know if you, so um, basically I wrote one character voice in prose. Tracy, my co-author, wrote the other character in, in verse. So um, so we we divided it that way. I've I've seen other models of co-authored books where people are really you know 
working on the same sentence together or the same, you know, from the same voice. So, um, so, you know, each, each project, I guess, (laughs) can take its own approach, but it was really a great experience. I mean, we, we worked together over a number of years, I guess, from 2016 through 2018, I guess was, was sort of the heavy writing of it. Um, but then there was further, you know, after we figured out a publishing path and, and all that, then all the editing and everything like that. And so by then, by the later stages, we were in the pandemic, of course. And just to have someone else care as deeply as I did about a book before we even knew if it would ever get published, if anybody would ever actually read this thing. You know, I had really done about zero preparation, I think, for the experience of co-authoring. I it just, um, you know, I, I had started working, putting together little pieces of, of ideas, and then realized pretty early on that it was a bigger story than one author, at least than I, as one author, you know, could, could navigate. So I knew it needed another author, but beyond that, I hadn't given any thought to process or anything like that. So it was just such a delightful surprise to have a a co-author who became a friend, you know, in the, in the process of things and to just have that kind of connection through the writing process um, was, was an unexpected, unexpected for me. Let's, let's drive some traffic to your website. So can you give a, like a slight preface for those who have not yet visited the website to Detours Ahead. And then my my follow-up question, which is a separate question entirely, is, uh, I mean, how, how do you embark on that decision to partner with somebody in that way? Sure, sure. Um, so I guess preface in terms of what the book is about, kind of, if he's, yeah. Okay, so... Yeah, Okay, sure. I just make sure. Um, so basically, it's a story about a friendship of two kids here in Washington D.C. So that's where I live. Um, you know, exciting place to um, to see on a, on a page. Um, so I yeah. <laughs> wanted to get that out there. So um, so um, Gila is the character um, whose voice I wrote from. Um, she um, identifies as neurodiverse, which I know um, there's there's different variation, different terminology. Um, you know, we. we 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 kind of chose the broad umbrella for all all sorts of all sorts of reasons, but um, but um, that is how Gila herself I, I think sees herself, and um, and she becomes friends with a Salvadoran American boy um, who she meets while riding the H four um, during her bus rides to school. Um, they, there's a, a an incident one morning where uh, the bus swerves too close to uh, Guillermo is his name um, as he's riding his bike um, near the bus, um, and Gila is the one who makes sure the bus needs to stop and make sure he's okay. And fortunately he is. And, um, you know, and, um, but while his bike is being repaired, he, he spends time riding the bus as well. And, um, and the two of them become friends. So um, I guess um, in terms of the, how do you embark? Was that, was that? Yeah. Cause it's such a, it's such a huge decision to partner with somebody on an entire book. And like you said, you didn't know necessarily what it was going to be like when you, started on the process. I asked that having the same exact experience with Brenna, you know, we didn't know what this, this podcasting experience was going to be like until you try it, I guess, and you figure out your, your own voices. So was that, is it a similar kind of experience? That's a really great point. I hadn't thought about that before because other podcasts that I'm familiar with, you know, it is more commonly one voice. And so it, it would be interesting to, um, to hear more from, from your experience as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess the decision, you know, and I don't know, how this played out for you all, you know, I think in, in the case of this particular story, um, it seemed important. So it was inspired by a real life incident on the Metrobus. Um, and, um, 
it it seemed important that whatever story was wanting to be told from all this, um, that it was it was not just one character's story. That there were there were these two stories that came together to make one story, um, and. I think I realized pretty early on, um, so because of the route that the bus travels was kind of, um, you know, sort of how um, Guillermo's character was kind of starting to, you know, I knew he existed in some form, although um, although actually the, the genders of the characters were reversed in the very early stages of all this. So, you know, I really knew nothing about him slash them slash, you know, who, who that character was going to be. But, um, but I knew pretty early on that I wasn't the right person to tell that story, um, that I just wouldn't be able to do it in an authentic way. Um, and so I think it, that was sort of the, the decision to embark for this particular book. I think that, um, that was the story to tell. And I felt like I could only tell half of it, you know, so it was, it was kind of a unique situation of, you know, sometimes there's stories out there where maybe I feel like I can't tell this story at all. And so that's a story for somebody else. But this was a story where, you know, I felt connected. I felt like a piece of this kind exactly, of thing. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah. And so if I could only find somebody to kind of help me <laughs> shape it and, and, and tell it from there. Yeah. That's so interesting because, you know, there are any number of books out there that have multiple points of view or, you know, multiple like main characters, it, you know, once you get into middle grade and YA and beyond, mm-hmm. but they don't always have co-authors, you know, that's actually, I feel like that's pretty rare. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting to me. And also like, it makes me feel like you are very, you were very aware of the story and also very self-aware to sort of know, like, I know who this character should be. And I also know I want somebody else to tell that piece of the story because I've never gotten to that point in a story where I'm, you know, I'm writing and I'm thinking, Hmm, I really want to bring someone else into this. You know what I mean? Cause writing is so solitary and can be so much just like in a vacuum kind of that you don't, mm-hmm it just that just never occurred to me so I think that that's that's just really insightful and you know like thoughtful that you that you went to that place and then I guess so my my question then is so I was reading a little a couple of your interviews beforehand and it sounds like so you had sort of had the idea already you wanted somebody else to tell the story and you also wanted it to be told in verse right so that was your I think that was my initial vision. I think if Tracy had, you know, had kind of come to the project and felt differently, you know, it wasn't for me to decide, but I just sort of had this image somehow. So, yeah. 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 Can you, can you talk a little bit more about why you felt like it should have it, that, that character should be written in verse or why it sort of like came to you like that? That's a great question. And question maybe better than than any answer I would come with I you know I don't know and from your experience you know with with writing fiction as well like it it has never really felt to me like I was creating the character I mean I think sometimes you know certainly certainly it's felt like there's been times of editorial slash author authorial if that's even the word you know decision making of you know it things that we need to do a certain way because we're conveying this character in this imperfect medium of words, you know, that, mm-hmm. you know, words can get us as close as they can and we can kind of keep striving, but it's never going to be a hundred percent of everything about somebody that could be conveyed in words. And so, you know, we kind of make decisions along the way to get as close as we can. Um, 
But I think I've always felt like characters kind of exist in their own plane without me. And so, you know, if I happen to stumble onto someone and <laughs> have these tools or, or whatever it might be to be able to help that character's story to come onto the page. I mean, to me, that's, it's an honor and, uh, you know, to, to just get to be part of that process. Um, And so it, it, it's sometimes hard for me to remember that the character, you know, I mean, that there is a sense of reality, you know, so the character does, you know, I I do understand fiction, you know, but, um, but I think when I'm writing, I'm not necessarily seeing it that way. And so, yeah, I don't, you know, I think the verse, you know, Guillermo as a poet, I think, I, I think just falls into that, that, yeah, yeah. I think it was, I think it's a smart um, choice too, as well, especially if you do, you are doing um, dual point of view, because you want them to be different enough that yes. it's, it's required, you know, because otherwise, why mm-hmm. would you tell the story in dual point of view, you know, when you could just mm-hmm. do like, third person or first you know first person point of view and then how they react but if you're you're alternating with those you really want to make them distinct and so that's a really good way to do that like that you know that's really helpful because in picture books you know you want to have just the one main character and then I I have been told you know a bunch of times by critique partners that you know you've got too many characters here like they're not moving the story along you know because I just get excited I'm like oh well this guy could pop in and then there's this guy and they're like well you have 500 words you know like these people aren't doing anything like you have to cut them you know because they're not distinct enough they're not helping so but you know in middle grade obviously you have you have that much more freedom but I do think making the voices distinct like that is really the way forward because there are, there are PBs that have multiple main characters. Yeah. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's more rare, but mm-hmm. their, their voices are very distinct and very mm-hmm. different. So mm-hmm. yeah. no, that's a great yeah. point. And I think, I think what you said about picture books is also true for middle grade in terms of, you know, it, it's still important that whatever characters are there are there for a reason in that story. So I think, you know, sometimes there may be characters that exist in the world of the story, but don't make it onto the page because, mm. you know, of this particular story being told. So I, I feel, I feel your pain. <laughs> and I, I think in, in both formats, <laughs> that can be, that can be something to think about. Yeah. <laughs> so how, how did you, how did you land on partnering with Tracy Lopez? Sure. Sure. Yeah, so we found each other on the internet, um, and so you know, I, I was even pre-pandemic. I think for I, I don't know if I, I definitely consider myself an introvert. You know, I, I don't know if introverts are overrepresented in the world of, of children's literature, but um, <laughs> yes. you know, and I think truthfully, you know, coming from the world of you know um, folks who I, you know I have kids as well. I was <laughs> the reason I was on the age four that morning. I was taking my son to school, you know, um, and you know busy days and other jobs and other things that, that we're all doing. And so, you know, I, I think even before the pandemic, the internet did provide, does, you know, does and did provide um, ways, you know, to connect with other writers when I only have five or 10 minutes and it's 10 o'clock at night, you know, that, and I don't, I can't even predict two days ahead of time what, <laughs> when those five or 10 minutes are going to be. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, so I put the the inquiry out there and I think you probably read in some interview somewhere, you know, so we, we had a couple of other possibilities. I mean, Tracy wanted to be really sure that, you know, that she was the right person as well. And so, you know, we pursued some other um, 
possibilities. And then, you know, things just kind of kept leading us back <laughs> in that direction. Um, and it turned out to be, to be really fortunate, I guess. And, um, and, and it really was an internet based collaboration. You know, she lives, um, you know, out, just outside the DC area, but DC area is big enough, you know, so, um, so it, it, you know, maybe it'd take us an hour and a half, two hours, something like that, which, um, you know, we didn't meet in person until we were pretty far in, you know, um, to a couple years worth of, um, oh, wow. of, of writing together. Um, yeah. and, you know, and really just email and Google docs, Tracy is a genius at Google talk and organizing. <laughs> and I have to say if, you know, and I, I don't know in terms of podcast partnerships, but I feel like just kind of having, having that balance of different skill sets that, that Tracy could keep us organized and on track and remember wait, we said, you know, we were going to come back. Oh, right. Right. I, I that I, you know, um, <laughs> so just kind of, you know, using words on that, you know, in that way to written words to help facilitate our process at the same time that we were creating this written project was kind of a, an interesting parallel as well. Yeah. In, in one of the interviews that I read it, she, she, her answer had said she was really good at doing the organizational stuff because she said that she has ADHD. And so to, to help with that, she has become very organized. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I can relate to that. I also have ADHD and I uh-huh. tend to keep a lot of lists and a lot of like planner stuff and just like notes everywhere mm-hmm. so that it appears that I have my, you know, I'm, I'm together and I know what's going on. But if I don't write everything down or I don't have it somewhere, yeah, mm-hmm. I can get very um, disorganized and overwhelmed like pretty quickly. So I really um, sympathized with that. Yeah. Case, case in point, what's behind you? Yeah, yeah. The, the listener won't be able to see oh, it. Yeah. The right. <laughs> yeah, it's our, it's our home sprint board for any IT nerds listening because my, my husband has those at work. I think Josh has those at work. Like, so we've implemented it into our home life so that we have, we work on like a two week rotation. It's oh, like wow. a cycle rotation of projects we need to work on. So I have all my writing stuff here. My husband has his like, you know, home improvement stuff slash like car projects he wants to work on. My son is involved. Oh, there's the puppy. Oh. <laughs> this podcast is being interrupted by the dog. Yeah, so He's not really a willing participant. <laughs> Please continue. No, he's looking the podcaster's face. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's precious. Um, so I wanted to ask also about, um, so with D2 or ahead, so can you talk more about PJ publishing? Cause that was very interesting to me. Sure. Um, and I'm, I'm glad to, cause it, I mean, it's, it's both interesting and, you know, it's been such a, such a wonderful process for us, I think. Um, so, um, some, some folks might be familiar with PJ library, which was the original, um, it's a, um, a, run through a nonprofit foundation, um, the Harold Greenspoon Foundation, with the goal of sending free books with Jewish content. Um, the PJ Library program originally started for um, babies through age eight, um, and then that expanded to PJ Our Way. So there's now three different PJ components. So uh, there's the PJ Library. PJ Our Way is a similar mission um, for kids ages nine through 12. So that's where um, these were ahead fell into, um, with the, the slight distinction that um, PJ Library, um, there's a sort of a decision making of, okay, two-year-olds this month are getting this book about this holiday, and it's kind of the same out for um, various communities that participate. PJ Our Way, the kids actually select, so when they're in that middle grade age. Um, but um, where, so where that has was really interesting, so they, um, 
they get their books from all different sorts of, you know, um, both books that are coming out anyway. So um, Queen of the Hanukkah Doses kind of fell in that in that category. Um, they um, have also been instrumental in bringing back some out of print titles that maybe didn't sell enough copies when they were first released, but can have this new audience through this program. And then the third venue um, really is bringing into play new books that wouldn't have found a publishing path otherwise. And so, um, so PJ Publishing is one of the components of that. So some, some of their um, new books, um, they, they have something called an author incentive award that listeners may want to want to check out. And, you know, they really are seeking more books of Jewish content. And so they, um, some of those are, they partner through other publishers and some of them um, it's, you know, if it's not, a you know, matched up with another publisher, then PJ Publishing will look at, you know, we want, we really want this for our program. I'm actually remembering now that I think Queen of the Hanukkah Doses may have, I, my initial submission was to the PJ Library program, and then it ended up with another publisher. So, you know, there's some kind of intersections and, and back and forth with, with some of these, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was a really great process to work with. And um, I, I had, had done a board book with PJ Publishing years ago when they were first starting this publishing arm of PJ Library, which, you know, didn't initially start as a publisher. Um, and at the time, the PJ Publishing titles were only available through the PJ Library program. Um, but now they have expanded so that, um, and they're still continuing to work on their availability channels. Um, right now, the books are also available on Amazon. Um, and I know they're working on other pathways. So um, it's, you know, we're, we're sort of a guinea pig, I think, in, in, you know, exactly what their channels look like for um, distribution to libraries and, and other places they're they're moving forward. Um, but I, you know, I think being a guinea pig of anything during a pandemic is also um, <laughs> add some detours uh, along the way, but you know, it's, it's been a great experience to work with. Yeah. So it, so it's in the DC area, correct. And it's, that's where it started at the PJ library there. Um, well, under the organization, no, so there, the Harold Grinspoon foundation is based out of, um, Agawam, Massachusetts in Western Massachusetts. Okay. Um, but they, um, they partner with, so PJ library originally, um, and I guess still they, you know, they have what they call, I think community partners is the term. And I might be getting that a little bit off, but, um, they work with organizations in different communities that decide to participate. And so, um, so those community partners, um, I actually, I believe, and can fact check me on the, the PJ website. I'm not, I'm not an official spokesperson by any sense, but um, but the community partners kind of decide on what those book selections are going to be. They sponsor events. Um, they have, you know, they maintain the lists of you know who subscribes and um, and everything like that. So they work closely with um, with the local communities that way, including DC. So my kids were both PJ Library and PJ Airway kids as they <laughs> as they moved through. Time for a cookie break. Our chewy, reviewy mid-episode pause is a mental reminder to ourselves and to you of the importance of reviews to an author's success and to their ability to reach new eyes. I very likely do not need to recommend this book to you because you are probably already familiar with it, but I will anyway. Soul Food Sunday is one that is worthy of shouting out. Winsome Bingham's incredibly loving text is paired exceptionally well with illustrator C.G. Esperanza's lively and expressive art in one of the most standout picture books 
books I've read in recent memory. The artful and true-to-life contrast between the boisterousness of a big family gathering and the opportunity it offers the youngest generation to learn and grow from their elders is really a great thing to behold. Brenna's recommendation for the week is I Can Explain by Shinsuke Yoshitake, uh, which I will link in the show notes, is a hilarious take on bad habits and in a great twist ending like only Yoshitake can pull off. It also points out that kids are not the only ones who develop these coping mechanisms. This is a Brenna explanation here and signature alliteration. With boogers, butts, and bed jumping, these illustrations perfectly represent the way a child views their world. Pick pun intended, your copy up today. Get out there and review a book today, and then tweet about it with the Chewy Reviewy hashtag, which you should also search if you're not familiar with Chewy Reviewy or Cookie Pitch yet. We thank you, and the authors you review thank you as well. And now, back to our chat with Pamela. It's an interesting model. I mean, I was going to say business model, but I'm not sure it's a business in in that traditional sense. Yeah, I so agree with you. And I'm so glad that you said that too, because I feel like I've had this little mini soapbox wherever I have a chance for you. And I hadn't thought to even say, but I really feel like in the whole diverse books movement that there, there could be so many opportunities to replicate things like this. I, um, PJ Library was actually an adaptation of Dolly Parton's Imagination Library in Tennessee um, that um, I think, I, I believe that program was birthed through five. It was not any particular type of books other than books that children birth through five would love and would get them reading and get books in their homes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We Um, just signed up for it. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And I really feel like what PJ has then done really gives that opportunity and particularly with those, those avenues for books to get out there without needing to necessarily prove there's going to be a huge market right away. Um, You know, I think some of them go on to have a, good size market. Others are books that, you know, as they've come into my house, I feel like, wow, I'm really glad this book exists. (laughs) And, you know, but I can also see as an author, like, gosh, that would have been really hard to pitch at a marketing meeting, you know, to prove to, you know, um, you know, just when you go through that process of acquisitions at, you know, especially one of the big publishers, but any publisher is a business that, you know, as much as the editor might love your book, they do have to, feel confident that their company is not going to lose money on it, you know, and hopefully at least would make enough money to justify the costs and effort that they yeah. put into it. Um, so to be able to have books that are worth having out there without having to necessarily prove ahead of time, because it's really hard to predict. I mean, I mean, you both know for sure, like, you know, things can be a surprise, you know, bonanza <laughs> success. And then there can be ones that, you know, gosh, it seems like everybody in the world is going to want to purchase 10 copies of this for their friends. And it doesn't necessarily make that sales number. And so to be able to anticipate ahead of time for publishers to be able to take a risk, it really, and so to, I've, I've felt for a long time that, you know, um, other philanthropists with interest in other categories of diverse books, you know, that this was Harold Grinspoon was one person who started a foundation. And so I feel like there, there have to be others like him out there with interests in other books representing other communities. And, um, you know, the, just as a way to get, get more of those titles into existence. So I, I would love to hear, and, you know, certainly if I can ever help anybody, you know, if, if any philanthropists are listening to this and want to talk to the right people at PJ library, you know, I'm happy to, 
try to make some email introductions. Let's, or let's, be, let's be spokespeople, right? Absolutely. Yeah, right. For, for taking it. the profit, profit out of publishing. <laughs> yeah, right. Get it out there. Because I, I think you or Tracy, I can't remember who had said that in one of the interviews. And I thought that was so... Um, it was just so interesting and so true. Yeah, you don't have to with us with the model that PJ Publishing is using. They don't have to vet this book for the public or with an acquiring editor or a marketing team or whatever to make sure that they're actually going to make a profit and decide whether or not, you know, they're going to take the risk. Instead, they've decided this is an important book. This is an, you know, an important community to showcase and people need these books, so we're just going to do this, which yeah, I mean, I think turning that whole paradigm on its head is so important and so smart. And you're right. I mean, you could, someone has already done it, right? Like replicate it. Uh, you know, people who are listening, uh, replicate it, you know, like take it and just run with it and have more of these available and get the books out there. The one, you know, those really important books that are, you know, sitting on the shelves for years. It, it's an interesting filter to put on it. Um, th this kind of like philanthropic publishing lens. I mean, the, the thing that this puts me in mind of is our conversation we had with Gerald Connors a few months ago, ran in January. You know, he, we talked together about the essentially low barrier to entry for a kid's interest. Um, you know, if you're a kid, you'll get on Kindle and you don't care if it was marketed well or backed by Scholastic or whatever. You just want to read a fun story and putting the lens on, not so much is this is this story going to make us money and make us profitable and make our investors happy, but is this an important story to tell? I think is a really really nice tweak on the model. Uh, one, it's it's hard to say one that's worthy of investing in, but because that that puts that sort of like capitalist spin on it. But it's it's mm -hmm. it's it's a really nice way to get the right stories in in hands in all hands. I guess mm -hmm. is the point. Yeah, along with, I mean, Dolly Parton in her imagination library, right? Like, that's huge. That's, that's also doing great things for kids who may not be able to afford books. Um, it's also like a fun surprise every month. And there's, I went on the website just to check it out. And I signed my son up for it because there's, you know, you just fill out the form and that's it. There's no, like, no questions, no, um, you know, probing um, weird suggestions for a donation. It's just, you know, sign up and we will send you books, which mm -hmm. is incredible, especially, like I said, for people who might not be able to afford books every month or, you know, have the means to get to a library. So mm -hmm. for, for that, like everything else Dolly Parton related, it seems too good to be true. <laughs> <laughs> right. Also, P.S. Dolly Parton, please come on our podcast. Please talk <laughs> all about all about your imagination library on our podcast. That would be so great, <laughs> right? <laughs> we, you, do you think of yourself as a service-oriented person? Which is a, kind of a leading question because you know, in in reading more about you and getting familiar with you, you're you're upfront about your time with AmeriCorps and how it's inspired. You know, at least one of your books that's out into the world. Um, and now in talking through this path to publication for Detours Ahead, it just makes me wonder um, if, if you think about that way, about publishing that way, writing that way um, as like a mission driven kind of enterprise for you. That's so interesting. I mean, I, and I think I, I aspire to be a service oriented person. Maybe that was a, is a more accurate. Like I feel it's like a very I, humble way to put it. Well, <laughs> you know, I feel like I fall short, you know, in terms of if I like, if I had a million hours in a million days, you know, what what could I be doing that I'm not 
doing right now, you know, but, but I think, um, you know, that, uh, I, I love that you asked that question, first of all. And, and I do think that AmeriCorps absolutely inspired pretty much everything since then. I mean, um, I was in, it was the third class of AmeriCorps members, um, in, 1996, 97. Oh, wow. Yeah. Way back <laughs> yeah. when it started. Very and, cool. And people didn't think it was going to last. I mean, some politicians were on TV saying, you know, we were somehow costing the nation some thousands worth of dollars by using, we, we figured out, they were, they had figured out that we were, um, the communities there, it was also a community partnership kind of arrangement, and the communities had donated in-kind use of their rehearsal space or use of their building or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so because the community was letting us use their space, therefore we were costing the taxpayers, you know, some bizarre amount of money and all kinds of things. People didn't think AmeriCorps was going to, it was going to survive. And yet somehow, you know, here, here it still is. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that absolutely did a lot to, to shape my view on, I think service as something that, ultimately benefits the person doing the service. I mean, I more, you know, at least as much as, you know, but I, I certainly feel like I gained more than I was able to contribute. And, you know, I don't know whether mm. that's a humble way of looking at it, but I, you know, I don't know. So but, selfish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think for writing too, you know, and I think, I, I think you're right that, when I tally up the list of things that I don't manage to volunteer for in the committees, I don't manage to sign up for and yeah. <laughs> all those kinds of things that I do think that I often will bring myself back to, but I have this writing thing that I do. And, you know, if I don't find the time to do these five other projects, that writing is something that I can do that maybe not everybody feels comfortable doing or has had the opportunity, you know, I mean, I do think that there are a lot of people who don't think of themselves as writers who have important stories that they, you know, I, I, am hoping they find the inspiration also to, um, to go ahead and do. But the fact that I, I, you know, it is something I can put words on the page and, you know, have them mean something. And sometimes somebody will pick some up and decide to read them very often. They're (laughs) sitting here in files on the same computer that I'm talking to you on. So (laughs) they're not all out there, but, um, but I do think that, you know, that, that, that has been a lens, um, you know, um, I I went to a presentation years ago. Um, the illustrator E.B. Lewis. Um, I don't know if, if, if oh, yeah. you're familiar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and at the time, um, I don't know if he had just turned fifty, so he you know a little bit older than I am now. But um, he said that he felt like he spent his first, you know, the first decades of his career, I guess, sharpening his tools as you know as an artist so both literally but you know his his artistic tools as well you know um so that when he finally had something to say his tools would be ready for him and that really stood with me because I felt like so much of the training to be a writer is about you know how to tell a story how to you know get the character on the page and you know it, it took a lot of convincing for me that you know stories do actually need plot. All right, I'm. I'm <laughs> that now, and, you know, mm. was a it's a rough day when you find that out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, but so and so. Okay, you know, yes, it's needed, and how to do it, and all those kinds of things. But I think you know the the point that you brought up about a a service oriented approach. So what does this mean? You know, okay, so now I can tell a story with a plot and you know, and why is that important? And I think there's, there's different categories of 
books that are out there. And I think absolutely, you know, there's some very good arguments that there are books that exist for the joy of, you know, getting children to, and adults to read and read more. And I, you know, and I think for adults too, it's, it, it, it's important in our world that we're living in that people are continue to be open to all sources of information and, um, you know, facts and <laughs> science and all these kinds mm-hmm. of things, you know, yeah. um, that doesn't go away. And, but, you know, but I think just really thinking about what the, what the particular mission is, wherever it may fall, you know, in, in that, um, you know, I'm glad you asked that. I feel like I'm kind of rambling, but you know, no, uh, no, it I, give me a lot to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think what we're, what we're kind of getting or aiming ourselves towards is this notion of writing itself as service to sort of tweak something you said a couple of minutes ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you say, you said in the early part of the conversation, writing, you know, putting words on a page is an, is it's an imperfect lens with which to depict something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this notion of, you know, what we're, what we're giving to the world and creating as a, a service for other people to enjoy or learn from or take advantage of or have enriched their lives um, is just an evolving process. I think it's a really cool thought. Yeah, well, thank you for shaping it. I mean, I, I, I hadn't thought about it quite that I way. didn't mean to. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> As someone who writes purely for entertainment, yes, I didn't mean to sort of like take your your, your very heartwarming idea and run. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I, and I think, you know, entertainment, we need entertainment. I think, you know, if, if, if there's anything that the pandemic has brought to light, I mean, you know, and I, it's not an original thought I know I've seen on Twitter and wherever, you know, that um, just what did people turn to, you know, in these scary times and, you know, mm-hmm. w- whether it's binge watching on Netflix or, you know, um, whatever forms of, you know, um, I, I mean, it's, it was interesting to see how, you know, streaming of plays and concerts and things became a thing. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the arts in all forms. So, I, you know, it's all it's all service and it's all it's all. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, every story is valuable. You know, most of the time, like Josh and I both tend to tell, you know, funny, quirky, uh-huh. you know, just sort of like weird kid stories. Uh-huh. Um, but those are, you know, those are important, too. Like totally. I as an adult, I seek that stuff out on Netflix. Like I'm the one who's binge watching the weirdo stuff on Netflix because <laughs> I, you know, you need a break from what's going on every once in a while, not mm-hmm. to say that you shouldn't be informed, you shouldn't be involved. You know, I feel like I do what I can to a point and then I need to tap out for my mm-hmm. own sanity. And that's what I go to. Some people go to scary movies and horror. You know, some people want to laugh. Some people want to, you know, dive into science or documentaries or whatever. And it's all fine. It's all stories. It's all valuable. Mm-hmm. People have spent time, you know, trying to, get across their story onto this page and it's Mm -hmm. it's all valuable even even if you know writing can seem kind of selfish sometimes because I do I do so much enjoy it Uh but I also feel like I am writing the stories that I would want to read as a kid that I would need Mm -hmm. as a kid to to feel like you know things are going to be okay there is still laughter in the world things are still fun you know you Mm -hmm. can still enjoy your life even though there is just so much heavy stuff going on in the world. <laughs> um, so yeah, just totally. just to your point, you know, like it's all. I feel like it's all service in some in some way. Definitely, definitely, and I think you know what a gift to, for you all with you know to be able to give to kids in terms of their own mental health. You know, I think 
in this world that we're living in and to be able to uh, give them that break, like you said, to, you know, to be able to have them experience that as well. You know, the world needs much more of that. So Right, right. Yeah, yeah. release the tension, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Can I, I want to segue, and before we get, you know, the conversation gets away from us too much and, and our episode runs out of out of space, but I, I want to talk more about Queen, Queen of the Hanukkah Dosas. Sure. And I want to segue to that because, you know, there is stuff that's that's in there that could be, uh, I don't know if I'm using the word right, didactic or message heavy, or it could take a very different turn. But I think what's fun about the story is that it has undertones that normalize challenges, like unique situations that families find themselves in with this fun little, my sister's annoying and I have to cope with it kind of thing. I mean, you know, talk, talking about the world being so heavy, that could very, very easily be a book about the challenges of having a, a uniquely mixed race family, having a mixed experience. But there, there's not really any of that in there. They don't have those sorts of, uh, of struggles. They have found a way through to their own cultural norms and doses for that family is just what that's what Hanukkah is like. And I think that that's, that's really wonderful that that's so uh, backgrounded and normalized and, and the story's really about, you know, this is, this is my family. This is just my sister that climbs on stuff. And we got to find a way to make this useful to the family. <laughs> I'm curious how you got, how you got to that, how you, how you got to that nugget, how you built out that family and, and, and got to that place with them. You know, it's interesting because I don't know that I ever saw it as okay. I need to avoid making it didactic because I don't, I don't, or you know, avoid focusing on challenges because I'm just. I, I think it didn't really. The nugget maybe didn't start in that place for me, so it wasn't. Um, it wasn't a path to overcome necessarily. Mm -hmm. Maybe if um, I mean, I think it was written from a place of joy. You know, I think um, at the time there were not as many books in the Jewish book universe. I, I'm I'm happy to see that there's been so much progress um, since that has come out. Um, that um, you know, it used to be that when when I look at the selection of what books were out there about Jewish holidays and Jewish culture, you know, the the faces, you know, and so in the picture books, you know, it. it hits you, but you know, in middle grade and everything too, you know, I think the faces didn't really reflect the wonderfully diverse Jewish community that I was living in. So I, you know, we, we would go to yeah. touch about services each week and, you know, I would experience one form of Jewish joy that was, you know, from my perspective, very welcoming of, you know, families of all sorts of interconnected inter, you know, everything kinds of yeah. backgrounds. And then there seemed to be a disconnect between the families I was enjoying spending my Jewish times with versus the families that I would see in books. And so, um, you know, that, I think that was an interesting piece of, you know, sort of where, where are we in terms of identities and everything? So they, um, it was, it wasn't from my own cultural background of being in a, you know, intercultural family that way. Um, the, um, PJ Library was actually the one that insisted um, that the publisher make sure to pair the text um, with illustrations from an Indian heritage author. He's British, um, but from you know his family. Oh, that's really cool background. representation. So, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 
Um, and so I think, you know, and so when you brought up about the, the co-authoring for Detour Ahead, it kind of brought to mind that picture book experience of, you know, not necessarily co-authoring, but, you know, the role of the illustrator in a picture book you know, if, if you're someone like me who can't draw a stick figure and so would never be a, <laughs> would, would never be an author. Illustrator we know our place, no. right? <laughs> <Our skill set. laughs> but that there kind of are these two different narrative visions in a sense that, you know, I, when I, um, because I started in middle grade, but then when I um, moved to also trying picture books, it really, I had to relearn the whole show don't tell paradigm because I thought I knew show don't tell but it turns out that means something totally different when you have to leave room for there's someone else who's going to, who's really showing. And so mm-hmm. if I say such and such in a text, well, that would impinge on that person's freedom to, you know, maybe they want some, you know, something different mm-hmm. with the ice cream or whatever, whatever it might be. So, um, yeah, I feel like I'm kind of di- diverging a little from the, <laughs> from the question, but yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a, of a piece though. Uh-huh. right? Yeah. So you, was it your, your vision to have the Jewish father and then the um, Indian mother sort of as the, the main core of the family, or was that put in uh, later? Cause you were saying that that is not your personal experience, but it's sort of more of a, more of a global experience, I suppose, from, from uh, participating in these Jewish celebrations and going to services. Yeah. So I guess, um, I'm trying to remember back because I remember there was some discussion about which parent was going to be bringing which background. And that um, I remember there was some back and forth. And I remember, too, that um, it was interesting how the the marketing materials kind of took a step further from what the actual text, because it it's never stated in the narrative one way or the other what the mom's religion is. So um, she I, you know, she could be Indian and Jewish, certainly. And there's a, there's a whole, um, array of, I mean, it, you know, as, as the book moved forward and even then beyond publication, you know, I mean, I, I'm continuing to learn more about, um, Jewish cultures that have lived in India for millennia, you know, oh, yeah. um, as well as, you know, folks who may have come from other cultures within India and then converted to Judaism later on. So there's, yeah. there's, okay. there's all sorts of different, configurations the the marketing materials seem to assume that the mom is not jewish and i'm kind of you know agnostic for lack of a better word i don't have a, an opinion on the mom's religion but yeah, right. um, <laughs> you're um, agnostic about her religion exactly, that's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but that, so that that uncovers i think a really interesting point about the interplay or the conversation or negotiation or lack thereof i guess mm-hmm. that you have during the publication process what what are what's the marketing team going to focus on? Are they really going to bring out this notion that this is an intercultural family, or are they going to emphasize the core of the story, which is a sibling relationship? Mm-hmm. And how do you influence that? And does the, does that run the risk of um, mm, eh, tokenizing is too harsh a word, but sort of like emphasizing the wrong thing about the story? I guess mm-hmm. not, uh, to be clear, not that that happened for queen of yeah. the Hanukkah doses, but, but, it, but it's a risk, I suppose. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. And I think it's something Tracy and I have thought about for detour ahead as well. You know, at, at what point is, is something, you know, at what point is the story of interest because of Gila's neurodiversity, because Guillermo is Salvadoran American. At what point is it a friendship about two kids who meet on a bus in DC 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and how do you disentangle? I mean, I don't I don't think anybody's suggesting we disentangle, you know, and take part of somebody's identity is part of who they are, and that's what they mm-hmm. bring, you know, in in real life as well as in fiction. You know, what what folks bring to um, to a story. But yeah, mm-hmm. but but that, that is interesting. Then when you reach the next step of then what does that mean for a book? Yeah. It seems less likely to happen in a middle grade because there is so much, you know, you are responsible for so much of the world setting and the, you know, the scene and the buildup and how these, you know, two kids are interacting. And with picture books, right, we we have to work so hard to remember there will be an illustrator who also has a story to tell and to overlay. I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard interviews with picture book authors, you know, who are just blown away by the illustrations that are telling, you know, a whole sub story that they didn't even see or think of. Right. And they're Mm -hmm. just like, wow, you know, like, where did this even come from? So it's, you know, it's entirely possible to tell that, you know, mixed race or family story through pictures and not even, you know, mention it in the text. Like it could be an art note, maybe, but it Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be. And so maybe in that way, you know, it helps to normalize things and to sort of make it like, well, this is what's happening in the background of the family. And, you know, the text focuses on the the sibling who's trying to climb up everything and, you know, just being super pesty. And that's, you know, that's the way forward. And then, you know, it becomes sort of a normal, regular background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's probably evolving. You know, I mean, I think probably the answer to those questions might've looked different 10 years ago and might yeah. look different 10 years in the future. I, um, I know I've definitely started to hear more recently about, the need to elevate the names of illustrators when um, when people are talking about picture books that you know there's there's a tendency to kind of shortcut sometimes and say you know by such and such an author but um, you know so I'll, I'll give a shout out to Anjan Sarkar um, as the illustrator queen of the Hanukkah yeah. and I was going to do it if you didn't yeah. <laughs> we'll take them in the show notes too we'll make sure that everybody is recognized yeah. <laughs> Well, we're getting um, close to the hour here, Pamela, and I don't want to take up your time, but is there anything else that you wanted to to talk about or touch on or tell people where to find you? Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you guys have done such a great job of, you know, distilling to the, <laughs> um, <laughs> the great points that I would have thought of. So um, definitely, I'm glad for folks to find me. Um, so um, my website is just www.pamelaarenberg.com. Um, and I'm also on Twitter just by my name as well. And, um, Facebook is Pamela Ehrenberg author. So, um, okay. Find me there. And, um, and I, I, I know I'm going to tangle up the name of, so Tracy's website too. I want to make sure, you know, I guess oh, sure. link to, we can, uh, we can yeah, link all of those too. Sure yep. can find her on, she's on, she's on Instagram. So she's ahead of me on the, the visual <laughs> pieces there too. Um, and also on Twitter. So I know she <laughs> as well. <laughs> okay. Yep. We'll, we'll, we'll get it all taken care of in the show notes. Um, thank you so, so much for coming on. It was really, it was really nice talking to you and so interesting. I feel like we covered a lot of things that we have not covered before on the podcast. So it was very interesting talking to you about your whole experience. Oh yeah. I so enjoyed talking with both of you as well. You may contribute a verse. Thanks for listening this week. Find out more about us and our guests and the artists behind their cover and theme music at our websites, verse.show, renegenerate.com and joshmontgords.com. See you next verse. Bye.